Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. I give a shit about you, Jesus. If you're in the Northeast, the weather sucks lately, and that's not a, that's just, you know what? I feel good about you because you're tough. You're tough, you're maintaining, you're going. So um, I've got a very special guest on today, Bill Arning. But before we get to that, I want to tell you how great Radio Free Brooklyn is. It's so great. It is the best station in the Western Hemisphere. There is no doubt about that because I have checked. I've checked every single one. Um, I want to um, let you know that you can help us out. You can go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate and donate some money or you could buy some merch. But mostly we have like over 70 shows and so many good shows. And if you're human, a human being, I don't know about dogs or cats, certainly maybe monkeys, you can definitely find whether it's talk or music, any kind, any, any, anything that makes sounds that comes, you have to be human to, to work here. Okay. So anything like that you can find and, and you will find something and you are missing out right now if you don't know about it. There, did I create some FOMO there? But even, but if I haven't, I just, I do have to tell you about a really exciting event that we're putting on. Okay. Okay. This is a music event by a station that knows like where our theme line is what Brooklyn sounds like. So anyway, we are presenting a show at Bar Frida. It's the bands are Seventh Grade Girl Fight, Dirt Bikes, Barrette, and Castle Black. And it's at 801 Seneca Avenue in Ridgewood, Queens. And it's May 20th. So you can't say you're too busy now to go. You just, you don't have plans that day. And it's at 730 Tickets are $10 and available on the door. And I'm sure, sure if you go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, we have it organized that you can get yourself a ticket right right there. Okay? I'll be there. We'll all be there. Where will you be? You're not busy that night. I know it. So you better be there. Anyway, I want to get to my uh, guest, Bill Arning. Hello, Bill. Hi. I'm looking at Bill Arning, who's in Houston, Texas, in front of an amazing painting uh, made by his um, betrothed. Can I say that? Yep. Yeah, I like that word. Yeah, his betrothed. Um, and do you have a wedding plan, Bill? No, we're, because we're doing the relocating thing, we want to do it on the property. We just uh, bought an 1830s farmhouse in Old Chatham. And we had this, we're imagining it just on, it's five acres, imagining it outside there. Oh. Uh, so what we oh. need to like, right now we have the logistics of actually getting up there to uh, uh, to, to deal with. But then once we get that settled. So you're going to wait, up. you're going to wait until you're like moved in and you can, and you can plan it. I love that. It's so romantic. I think Bill, you must have such a, like all your, the stuff you like all has, there is a romance in a lot of the work that you like, I think. Yeah. That's because well, you're gay. Been, you haven't had to deal with a heterosexual relationship. <laughs> well, and also, I've never lived outside of a city that. before. So that terrified me in some way because uh, I'm used to, like, I've lived in 
three big cities, New York, Boston, and Houston. And the idea of living in a place with a small population, I'm like, oh, this is good. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. I spent a month in Beacon. I relate. So listen, folks, you listeners, um, you know, Bill is like really charming, articulate, charismatic, and all that stuff. So I have like a bunch of questions or things to talk about. And I think maybe I'm just going to like throw most of them out. But I do think that the first, like what I was going to suggest, at least for the beginning of it, beginning of of this show, of the session, we should talk about Bill's uh, illustrious art career, or career in the arts. Let's, I don't know how, I he's, We'll get to that in a second. And then we really want to talk about his his partner and moving to Chatham and stuff like that because he's super excited about it. And I think, like, it'll be really cool because we want to get to know Bill outside his work because everybody in the art world knows about what he's done. And so I'm just going to put this down really quickly, Bill, because I want to turn most of this time over to you. So I'm going to put down really quickly, uh, I'm going to get it to you really quickly, what Bill is known for, or at least from my my point of view, which is what whatever that is. Um, and uh, for you non, if you don't know any, if you're, if you don't know anything about art, and there's a lot of you, don't feel bad if you don't know anything about art. But now, thanks to, you know, you should know about Bill Arning. So here's the thing about Bill Arning. Um, Bill Arning um, made, Bill Arning made a very, very, very important contribution to the art world um, as the director of White Columns from 1985 to 1996. And I'm going to say that was a major important place for art and the development of art and and me personally what I was looking at and I think a lot of people I think that that organization at that time period organi- uh, um, influenced a lot of what was going on in art certainly in New York City um, since then he moved to MIT Visual Arts Center he was in charge of that he was in charge he was the director of I mean these are like 10 these are all big big jobs 10 years here 10 years there he was the director of the uh Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston 2009-2018 but the most important thing about Bill is that he is um, somebody that really just has a insight and an, an affiliation, a understanding of art that transcends most people. I believe this. I believe this, and I'm not alone in this. Bill, are you? I, I know you. I mean, Bill. You know, I know I'm not the only person that thinks this way. Do you think? Do you know this about yourself? Have you heard stuff like this? Well, what I just I just learned a methodology for how to get inside an artist's their goals for their own work and help them realize those goals. And once I learned that methodology, I was like, just like, how do you listen to someone, hear what it is they're trying to achieve, and then look at what might be standing in the way of it? And that's you have to be artist centered in the field, and you have to be thinking that your what my job is is not the institution or like the sales and all the other stuff that you get involved with uh, to, to keep the wheels going. But it's 
working with artists to help them realize their vision. And if you can believe strongly in that, everything else becomes sort of like self-fulfilling. Like once, once you know what your job really is, it's really easy to be like, okay, this is what's in front of me now. This is what the artist is trying to achieve. What can we do to make it happen? And th that's the same in all of these different positions. Do you think, I mean, I don't, I don't hear that very often. I think that, you know, like a lot of curators and galleries, they find art on the, the like Instagram and stuff like that. And there's really no very little relationship with the artist. What do you think about that? I don't understand why what anyone would want to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, 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 I sell art gallery. I have an art gallery. I sell a lot of work via people who see what we do on Instagram. But my pleasure as a viewer is always being in front of the natural object. Uh, and, you know, it's like when people ask me, you know, if I'm going to get involved with NFTs, I don't have any, like, the thing that pushes me forward doesn't, that doesn't make me go like, oh, I want to learn more about NFTs. I'm like, no, I like going to objects and shows and studios. I, I still visit studios. I'm 61. And I visited my first studio back when Williamsburg was scary. Uh, uh, when I was working for Tom Solomon at White Column. So, guys, that kind of sums up what I was trying to tell you, right? No picking out artists on Instagram. There's like a relationship. I mean, this is what I'm saying. There's not a lot of people that get this, I think. Not enough. Yeah. Not enough. Um, I'm going to say a quote that I remember that Bill said to me in – uh, 1999 that I haven't forgotten that has really stuck with me. And then I am really going to turn it over to him because he's got so much to say and I want to get out of the way. The quote that you said to me, Bill, I think, I, I don't know if you've heard me say this to you since that time, but um, you said to me, it's not the object that's the art. It's what comes from it. That's the art. Yeah. And that like really hit me like, I mean, that's really stuck with me. And, and that makes sense that you said that, right? Well, and it's like an, an art object is a, catalyt a catalytic object. It's not the thing in itself. We all know if you, if no matter how much you care about an art piece, when you put it in storage, it stops being an artwork. It starts, it only becomes an artwork again when eyes are upon it. And when, like, like and, uh, it requires the presence of the viewer and it requires the mutable presence of the viewer. There are times when I go revisit an artwork I have loved before and because of whatever is going on in my headspace, it leaves me cold. And then the, art that, now the show next to it that I didn't even think I wanted to see will suddenly be like, oh no, this is exactly what I want to see right now. So... Uh, do Since you, everything is mutable. Do you change uh, or do your tastes change? Your circumstances change or you can't even put a I finger think, on I it? I think it's nearer to like, there are nights when I want nothing more than chips and salsa and other <laughs> times when all I want is, 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 is truffled. Uh, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, it makes sense. I, you have to listen for, to like what my desire is today. And it's, curious because we're you know as we're you've talked about we're moving to a new house and i'm going to be going up there i was just up there to do the walkthrough and the closing aaron's going up on sunday to meet the truck and he, the first we have a list of what we're going to hang in the house for our first uh. 
all, but I'm not going to be there for it. Uh, um, so we, we got the stuff that's sh- being shipped up there, but Aaron's going to be installing it. And I'm like super thrilled to like see these pieces that I know and love and care about. Like I have a, a, a piece that Felix Gonzalez Torres gave me as a birthday present. Wow. 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 It's Okay. Okay. I'm interrupting. Moving right along. We got to get, we got to get everything. Um, so, um, okay. Um, I want to talk, like I said, like I was saying to Bill before we got on the first part, we want to talk about art. So, you know, I'm just going to give you an open question about like what you, what, well, tell us what you think is important that we should know. Like, what have you learned? You've worked in different places. What is going on now? Tell us. I, um, my personal fascination now is artists that have been working outside the mainstream that have very little normal sense of that competition. Like, I'm 24 and I want to get uh, on everyone's Instagram this week. So like, I mean, last time I saw you in person was at the Outsider Art Fair and I was showing Wayne Gilbert, who's 75 years old, has been active in Texas for 40 years and he has never achieved anything like market success because he paints with unclaimed human remains. So great. And he is one of the most sincere, profoundly interesting artists. And I hear nobody pays attention to him because everyone knows him. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the old artist that, that has been around for Houston since before any of Because he's a us. Houston artist, and he's, he's been there his artist. whole life. And he, he grew up here. He, he, runs, he runs an important gallery space called uh, G Contemporary Gallery in the Heights. He's, everyone knows him, and everyone knows, like, oh, yeah, that's the guy who does the dead people stuff. Mm-hmm. And, then, and I was like, he's never going to get seen by fresh eyes here. So I had to take him to New York. And we have a mutual friend, Thedra Cooler-Ledford, who does a yes, lot of work. Yes, big group. shout out to Thedra. We love her. A really important painter, really important artist. Her work took, so when I moved here, she was in, in 2009, she was in every collection. She had been doing these giant paintings of Houston socialite women with Barbie doll bodies and Uzis. Uh, <laughs> and they, were, they were super funny. They were recognizable Houston socialites. But then in uh, 2015, she got a breast cancer diagnosis and she got involved is, with, with women who choose to not reconstruct their their, their breasts. Yes. It's called the Fabulous Movement. Mm-hmm. And she's she's funny as can be. She's hysterical. Absolutely. So, so what is... A giant boob pinata. Oh, oh my God. And it would burst open and she had handwritten on 5,000 candies, fuck cancer. And it was amazing to see this thing. And, you know, it's like, that's the kind of artist I just love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love her. I love her work. And and you're right. You're right. It's a kind of, she's the real deal. She's the real deal. Um, So I want to find out what, you know, you think about, um, like, you know, you've worked in institution. You've worked in every aspect. You're a, um, you know, you're an art advisor. You have all the, you have all the skills, and you've done all the things. So, what, what do, you, what have, like, what do you think is going on? Like, do you think what's changed? What do you enjoy the most? That kind of shit. <laughs> um, I, I, I like visual pleasure. 
Uh, I like things that are exquisitely pleasurable and terrifying at the same time. We were talking before we went on the air about that uh, the first show I did in Houston after leaving the museum was called No Trigger Warnings. And it was meant to um, uh, upset people a little bit. Uh, one, one sec. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, I, I, oh, I, I am at the gallery, so our mail person oh, is trying got to mail. Bill, Bill just got mail, folks. A little postcard yeah. there. Yeah. So, um, uh, and you know, it, it, there was uh, artists I just loved in that show. I had this giant Scooter LaForge, who's another great eccentric yes. artist, and I had this um, ten by twelve foot painting on unstretched canvas of a man performing auto fellatio on himself while a cat was playing with his me and <laughs> and i so i was just like yeah this is good this is something i could never have shown at the museum and obviously like i did not think i was going to find the right collector to buy that i almost sold it to a woman whose father had come out later in life wow and was being married to his new partner and she was looking for a wedding gift and she thought her dad would like this big homo pornographic painting he she sent him a photo he just said no that was not right quite right for the house but i love that i almost sold it to a, to a woman whose dad was coming out but also i mean even in that interaction you connected with her and helped her understand something new right which is really which is really really cool but also you were talking we were talking about um institutions how like you know like i mean for example, the Whitney Biennial is up now, and I remember the Whitney Biennial from the late seventies and eighties. And institutions have gotten really conservative, I think. And you've been in them, so I want to hear about that. Yeah, I, I was in museums for thirty-five years, and when you're at museums, you have to do things that you can make a case to a funding agency for their cultural importance. So you often do shows that are a little tiresome and and preachy because it's much easier to get a funding agency, oh, you're calling you know, attention to the plight of uh, ununionized workers in El Salvador. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's important. Yeah, we should know about that. But it ends up with this kind of no fun institutional culture. Mm-hmm. And I was part of that. I did shows that... Yes, the museum should have done those shows, but it's like there weren't stuff I wanted to go look at. And there were things like one okay, one funny story. Uh, there's yeah. an artist named Candy Ass Carrie Leibowitz. Oh, I love him. I love Candy Ass's oh. work. And I worked for a number of years on trying to do the first retrospective of Candy Ass. His self-deprecating humor, gay, Jewish, funny. And the institution at MIT, after I worked there for years, um, pulled the plug on it. They're like, we cannot make a case for why a, uh, a painting that has the words faggy, faggy, boom, boom is important and <laughs> how students might be offended by it. When I was at the Contemporary Art Museum, it turns out the Jewish Museum in San Francisco was doing the retrospective. And I got to bring it there and I got to be the coordinating curator to bring it there. Uh, and it was like one of the things, we had like stand-up comedy nights uh, and we had all these things about 
humor. And I was like, it was one of the most fun shows. People who knew nothing about art would love it. Bill, I have to tell you, I am such a fan. And I saw that show in Houston. I saw that show. I have the catalog. And sure. I feel I feel like that was a big reward when I found out that show was getting done. Because... Uh, so what was the reaction? Like, how, how, like, how, like, in the context of like, you brought something that was both fun and smart and rad- slightly, ra- somewhat radical, let's put it that way, depending on, uh, and how did people respond? Were you surprised by the reception? Were the people there surprised by the reception? Or what, what, what did you learn from that? I think it was confusing for a museum public that was used to a type of curating. None of the curators I worked with, and I worked with some fine curators in my director role, um, would have ever done that show. And I think they were somewhat baffled by why I was trying to make a case for humor being an important art form. Uh, And one of my favorite critics in Texas, Christina Reese, just wrote for her blog this essay about stand-up comedy is the only true contemporary art form now because it's the only one where you're not afraid of upsetting people. Uh, and I, it, it, I, and agree. I, I mean, we have a stand-up comedy night here at the gallery on Saturday night and they, Andrew Horneman, who's staying with me this week while he's doing other shows, his comedy is so hysterical. He's got this squeaky voice and we've got really good people on it because it's like, and I'm like, if, if normal art world aesthetics were ruling you know there's like nothing about this that is reminding us about inequality in the world it's all just very funny and it's all dangerous Mm -hmm. so do you think the art world as far as like what's prioritized what gets shown um what gets funded what what what's what students are learning and following has changed like from your white column days and can you talk about that yeah well, I think it's, I'm going to say not not the studio practice. I think artists are still making wonderful, decadent things. Curatorial practice has changed tremendously. And the idea of anything being beautiful, being enough, is just disappeared. Uh, and I get horrified by the amount of young curators that do not go to see art for pleasure. Uh, they, it's like, and I was first aware of this when I was at MIT. There were some really good curatorial programs in Boston. And I would go meet with the students because I was a curator. And I'm like, oh, well, and I was mentioning the 20 alternative spaces and the 15 galleries in Boston. Oh, you've seen this. Have you seen this? And they were like, no, 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 we read theory. And I'm like, no, that's, if you're not exposing your eyeballs to pleasure, you're not doing your job. You're not, you know, the job is looking to things and then finding ways to tell other people to give them the way in to find their own pleasure. And it might be different than your pleasure, but it's still pleasure-based. And I don't think curatorial studies programs ever use aesthetics or pleasure as a criteria anymore. Mm, mm. And, and, you know, it's like, it's like I... Uh, the values of inclusion, fairness, that's all a fascinating discussion, but that's not the reason why art is good. And, you know, I, I, I see so many 
memes about, you know, it's like just because your politics are right doesn't mean the art is good. And mm -hmm. I, and, mm. and also and also the whole idea that bad people make good art is an anathema to uh, that. I mean, I used to love hearing the horror stories about great artists whose work I loved who were not nice people. There's people you don't want to have lunch with, right. but they still make great work. And when I, when I um, this when I watch those those two Hannah Gadsby specials, the Australian mm. comic, and she talks about, and she's trained as an artist, You're right? And she, when she says she can't look at Picasso because of the way he treated the women in his life, I'm like, well, the only person being robbed of pleasure by that is you. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's interesting. But, I mean, yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, I wanted to ask you about, or I wanted to get your opinion. Like, I think that the educational system is a big problem with the art. This is me. I mean, what do I know? Yeah. But um, I, I don't. Um, I don't. I think like the the way artists look at like you can study and become an artist as a career. And I think that the, what you're saying about the curatorial side of it, and I think that's the same thing. I think art has gotten, I don't know what else to say, over-professionalized. Do, do you think that's a problem? Or? I, actually, the last time the Outside Art Fair happened in person, I did a panel discussion for them uh, called Don't Call It Practice. Um, and it was um, Laura Hopman from the Drawing Center, yeah. Marilyn Minter, and Lonnie Holly. And Lonnie, big names, folks. <laughs> yeah, no, like Lonnie's story about being traded for a bottle of booze when he was like four years old, uh, and doing this incredible work because of it. Marilyn and Laura and I were kind of like in awe of Lonnie, but we all talked about the problem of overprofessionalization of okay. the art world mm -hmm. and how telling a twenty-four-year-old artist who should be making work about the bands they listen to and the people they're having sex with and the, and you know, and the nightclubs they're going to like, they should be so out of focused and trying to like develop this into a body of work that will get them a good gallery by the 26. Like you remember when we started off, nobody cared about getting a gallery when you were that young. That was like, you know, it's like, no, we're, we're just going to open a space in this garage or we're going to have hang the show and then let our friends punk band play here. And this seemed like more vital than yeah. It was coming from the heart or it was coming from you and, and from the person and making art is such a, it's not really a, it's, it's a calling like every, like any, like being, being in love with anything you're doing. It's really a calling, right? Yeah. yeah and it's, and there's no standard course. Right. Uh, there's no, like, I mean, I have so many artist friends who had 10 year periods when nobody would show their work and they had, they were famous from 28 to 33 and then from 40, they got the attention again. And then, then there's 60 and everyone loves them and their, their prices finally went up and you're like, there, it, it, there's no standard practice and professionalization would require there to be an actual standard path for an art career. And also one thing about being old now, I love that the artists my age, everyone after they turn 60 goes, I'm only making work that satisfies my soul now. I am no longer hearing outside voices right. in my head. Right. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I think art school is important. I think like um, learning, how, you know, drawing and painting, learning the tools, learning, learning techniques that you can then use. I think there's value in there. But um, yeah. and then also be exposed to other ideas, other artists. Like, like the reason I liked the obsession with cultural theory when I was in school was it gave you these other perspectives, but it didn't become this like defining like I can critique this thing therefore I don't need to make it uh, <laughs> I like that idea that's yeah. hilarious but, but it was real like, <laughs> crazy. Like, you know, no I, I hear you I hear yeah. you yeah. No, because you could self-censor that was like this whole wave of people who went to art school to become artists but they learned so much theory they ended up becoming curators because they couldn't actually make anything that mm. might embarrass yeah, I mean, there's pitfalls. There's pitfalls like when artists get together and they all wind up making like, you know, the same kind of – they influence each other so much that people don't branch out and do what they really want to do. I mean, there's always going to be pitfalls, but I think the combination of money, the large amounts of money into the art world isn't necessarily productive for the actual product of the work, right? Although if it comes at a certain stage in life, like I was um – uh, I was having lunch when I was in New York last week with Walton Ford, who's an artist I've loved. I showed him when I was on White Columns. Uh, he was uh, discovered by me and Marsha Tucker in the early 80s. And then he's had ups and downs. But he has this, like, huge show at Gagoji now. The paintings are all really expensive and have done really well. And we were having lunch going, like, well, we've been through a lot of ups and downs. But somehow, you know, we ended up doing what we like. And you can see the passion in his work mm. for you know, and I'm like, yes, he is as successful as an artist can be mm. financially in terms of waiting lists, all that stuff. But the only thing that let him do that was he stopped hearing other people's voices and decided what would actually satisfy himself. Right. And, and having been one of the curators on the Mary Weatherford survey, when she had her first Gagoji New York show, she was like not talking about the amount of attention she was getting and she was getting a ton of attention, but how she loved the way the architecture of the space worked with the paintings. Mm. And, she goes, and she said this thing, she says, life is finite. We only get to do about like 20 of these shows in a really busy career. And I've got a busy career now. This show looks exactly like I always wanted my shows to look. It gives the <laughs> wow. Wow. That's like, amazing. Wow. Like, yeah, kind of, like, I got nothing against career success if you No, you right. Okay, so now we get to talk about the fun stuff. Um so tell us about Aaron, your partner. How how long have you guys been together? How you how you wound up moving and you bought you bought the house, you haven't moved yet. Where where how did you meet? Okay, go ahead. The story is um funny. Uh, I was still married. My marriage was was ending, but still amicable. In fact, where I, I was just having a text conversation with Aaron and my former husband about who's going to take the dog when we go up to <laughs> Dallas Art Fair in two weeks. So we're all friends. But it was like you know, I was we were already sort of not being married anymore. So exploring what it was, and then I was walking through the Lower East Side seeing shows, and this wildly enthusiastic guy runs up to me and he's like, I know who you are. Are you going to go, go to David Fearman's gallery? I'm like, yeah, it's on my list. And I was, he goes, okay, good. My show's up there. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it's on my list. And he goes, he's with a, a female friend, goes bopping down the street. And the sky opens up 
like icy cold rain and I'm right by the F train stop and I'm like, oh fuck, I just, I don't, I didn't have an umbrella. I'm like, I was going to go home. But then I felt guilty that this sweet guy had asked me to see a show and I hadn't. So I, 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 I'm friends with David. And I t- hey, can you send me a PDF for the show? And it was a really powerful show that Aaron Skolnick had done of Louis Solar Bickett, who was his first long-term partner who died of Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh, wow. And when, 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 so Aaron spent two years of his 20s taking care of this dying, one of the great Southern conceptionists who made work about AIDS. Wow. So he processed it by doing 48 portraits of Louis dying. And I call up David and I'm like, oh my God, these are great. I need to buy one for the gay art collection. And he's like, I said, are any of them still available? He's like, Bill, most of them are still available. Most people see dying gay lover. They run the opposite <laughs> direction. Of mm. course you want one. So I bought this beautiful painting of Louis dying and, there's a look people get when they're dying, when they've vacated their lives already, but they're still breathing. Mm. And that look is slightly hollow. And I've never seen anyone mm. paint that. And it looks almost like a Roman funereal portrait mm. in that kind of sense of gravitas. So I bought the painting and then we just started talking. And then he's like, well, I do portraits of living people too. Can you, uh, and, and I, I arranged to find a time to pose for him. And that's when we started dating. And it was long distance for a while. And he moved down here. He lived in of- New York. Is that what you're he saying? Lived in Hudson, in Hudson mm-hmm. New York. In Hudson. I, okay. Although when he was with Louis, they were in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, Louis was one of the great Southern conceptualists. Uh, uh, and then after that, he moved to Hudson. Hudson. Okay. He was, he's like, look, I'm not. So you're in Houston. He's in Hudson. Got it. Right. So he moves down here uh, in November of 2020, and he has a nice studio here, but he um, he didn't really love the scene here. And because of my business model, I have a beautiful gallery space, but less than 10% of my sales are to Houston people. I The, the way it works huh. is it, it's other people, people I meet at art fairs, people who are interested in the artists. Are so you, I, I can can I ask you a question? Are you more of a destination than people in Houston? Like people know you have a reputation, so people come to you, but they might not be in Houston for Houston yeah. art? I, I, a lot of my visitors are from out of town. Okay. All right. Got I'm it. Like, okay. And I'm like, I'm like five minutes sense. from the Manil, five minutes from Sicardi, which is one of the more important galleries yeah. in the city. Okay. Um, and so I'm right here. And the number one thing for Houston people, I've got parking. <laughs> uh, all they care about is like the phone will ring hi i know you're at 604 west alabama do you have parking I'm like yeah 10 spaces outside okay i'll come oh. i was doing shows at so i don't want to get you off the track go ahead so, so aaron moved down here he was very um so he had a great studio and we we're having fun and the, the food's great here but he really wanted to be back in the country and i was watching what was happening in the hudson Hudson Valley gallery scene and like all these great galleries like Alexander Gray and Mendes Wood have opened up spaces up there. And I, uh, and you know, I, I was talking to Alex Gray and he's just like, yeah, he is like, I barely go down to the city. I go down to the city when I have to. Uh, and there's like Joyce Goldstein's in the town. We bought Chatham, mm-hmm. their private public gallery. So there's a Hudson. lot of galleries. There's a burgeoning scene. And there's, an, and there's a gallery weekend in July. There's an art fair up there in um, uh, Kingston in mm-hmm. September. Yeah. So I can do it there. And what Aaron psychoanalyzed me, though, he's like, he, he, I mean, you saw me at the Outsider Fair. Sure. I love talking to people. Yeah. I love getting 100 people. 
one, I'm at the gallery today. Thursdays are slow enough. I was pretty sure I could do a podcast. And if, if like one or two people come in in the course of the hour on a Thursday, that's great. He's like, you're going to miss because uh, the gallery up there would probably just be open Saturdays and Sundays. Mm-hmm. And um, you may not get, it's going to be mainly people driving to come to you. So it might be very slow. So he's like, you're probably going to want to rent a space that's more central at some point. And also I can do shows in New York City. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So, have, so yeah. So, uh, so how long have you guys been together now? Three and a half years. Oh, wow. So th- yeah. that's, that's a nice long time. And it, you seem yeah. really happy. You seem really happy when you talk about him. You, you, oh. you seem like you're really in love. <laughs> I got to tell you, I wish and, you could see this guys. It's, well, it's also really funny because um, the studio is in the house now and uh. he's a painter painter. Yeah. And I will get here. Like, I'll be like, you know, in the bedroom doing stuff and I'll hear like, Bill, come. And I'll make this thing fall. And he will literally call me in to see a single brush stroke. He's like, look at how that's sitting. So I've never had, you know, I've, I've, I was also a couple with uh, Eric Hansen for yes. seven years and he's a pretty well-known painter. Yes. But he was, um, we, we, we didn't live together and the studio wasn't in the house. This is a much more intimate thing. Wow. So, so do you enjoy going in there? Because there'd be a lot yeah. of partners who would be like, I don't give a fuck. That's pretty amazing that, I mean, yeah. that's, that's what makes a good, wow. That's well, amazing. So you go in there and you see the brush, one brush stroke and yeah. you get pleasure from that. Yeah. And he, um, wow. Um, we, uh, the first show he did after we were together was he did a whole show of romantic paintings of us together uh, at Institute 193, which was uh, in Lexington, but they had a pop-up space on East third street. So like his debut after the show, I'd seen a Fairman was a show of paintings of us uh, in, in New York. Oh, wow. So um, do you, do you think that you've influenced his work or your relationship has influenced his work? He's pretty headstrong. No, I think. I mean, just subtly. Really, it must have in some way. But it's just, it, I think just having someone he could talk about painting with all day. Because when I opened the gallery, because of my institutional history at White Columns and MIT, they're like, oh, you're going to do all this avant-garde performance work and lots of video art. And I've got some of that. But my program is very painterly based and uh so to just be at someone that will have um like he'll be on his ipad at night and he'll find like a merlene dumas painting he loves and he'll start showing it to me with the painter's eye he's like look at the way that gray is sitting on the mm-hmm. cheek you know and, mm-hmm. uh, and we talk about young painters one of the things he wants to do when we get the gallery open and upstate is he wants to do projects together because there's painters that we both love like stephen braun who um uh and Kyle Coniglio, and he's like, he goes, he wants to invite them to paint with him on plein air and then do like shows in the space together. Oh, wow. So he, so, um, he paints outside plein air guys. It's like that, you know, when you see a, uh, an artist with a canvas out and outside painting, yeah. you know, so yeah, he, yeah. he does a lot. So he's, he's like very facile and fast. You have to be that way. Right. Well, he also almost got eaten by a coyote this summer because of it. Um, really? Uh, uh, my, my, my happy place is Provincetown, Massachusetts. And in the beach there, Heron Cove, there was, because of COVID, the coyotes had come back. 
And people were like, be careful. This one woman was walking with her baby and the coyote thought the baby looked like a snack and that ended up on YouTube. But he was down crouched and we were st- he was looking at these dunes and painting them and he was low on the ground and he looked and there was a coyote behind him in that pose, like ready to pounce. And he did what you're supposed to do. He, you stand up and you show how tall you are. And he uh, and the coyote didn't even like run away; it just kind of sauntered away. Then, wow, wow, wow! Scary. It's risky. It's risky painting outside. That's what I'm telling you guys. So, yeah. tell us about. So, I asked you before we run about um, when you're getting married, right? So, tell us about that. You yeah. you're going to oh. have a wedding, or yeah, like no, a real wedding, and all that. Have you been married before? Yeah. No. The, the person I was ending my relationship with, we we, we were married. You were formally uh, married. Yeah, so I've been married. Wow, I'm married a divorce gay guy. How about that? That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> but it was so amicable. Like, I, I talked to so many of my friends who got married in that first wave of gay marriage who had really painful divorces. And we just kind of acknowledged, like, yeah, we're not really feeling this anymore. And we both want yeah. to explore things. Yeah, so I, I think seven years is about right for almost any relationship, yeah, including I – mean, I'm sorry, Phil, but, you know, you probably feel the same way. Now, my <laughs> husband's great. My husband's great. So um, so you guys are – so um, – What happened was – t- how this came up. We were um, – uh, the beach in outside Houston is Galveston. And Galveston is crowded and hot in the summer. I never go in the summer, but I love winter weekends at Galveston. So we got a house to take the dogs down and be on the beach in Galveston. And it was like January. So it's still warm here. It's like, you know, it never Mm -hmm. gets that cold here. And uh, we were walking down the beach at dusk and there was like a hand constructed wedding altar with like flowers that had been fresh a few days before, but were now like desiccated and falling down. Mm -hmm. And and we, he's like, oh, let's go stand in this. So we stood under it. He goes, this is what I want, a hippie wedding. And, and, you know, so we like we kind of did this like fake wedding there. And then he's like, do you really want to do this? And I'm like, yeah. So we might be like wearing caftans and throwing. Oh, 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 that's hilarious. And he's younger than you, right? Talk, talk yeah, about that. Bit, yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, he um, he had been dating older his whole life. Mm-hmm. And Louis, part yeah. who died, was um, – 37 years older than him and oh, okay. I'm like 28 years older. So I'm still, I'm for him, a younger man. How and old is he? Is, You're 61. And how old is he? He's 32. 32. So, and it's, um, and it's interesting because like we were, you know, because of the house and all that, we were dealing with Will stuff and he's like, and he's already taken care of one artist's um, estate. Uh, mm-hmm. And, so I'm like, well, I've got the Bill Arning Gay Art Collection, and I want this to go to a museum. And he's like, yep, I can handle it. <laughs> I do forget how young he is. The only thing is when we were first going out, he texted me on his birthday, and he was in Hudson, and his friends had thrown him a birthday party. And he's like, hey, I'm thinking about you. It was my 30th birthday. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, like, he goes, it's weird turning 30 as a widower. And oh, Wow. It's like, and I heard that, and I heard the tone in his voice, and I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's a really fascinating. His life path is very different, and he's from a K- Kentucky 
Okay, this is going to sound weird. He's from a Jewish hillbilly background. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, I didn't know we had hillbillies. That makes me so happy to hear that. I love that there's Jewish hillbillies. Um, yeah, he, yeah, no, it's like uh, there, there are aunts and uncles that really, you know, like spit chewing tobacco on the floor. But then he's also got um, uh, his his birth dad, who's not that close to, uh, is still observant in, in Cincinnati. Oh. So it's... Uh, his background is very different than mine. So I was going to, I was going like, to say, local. like your family. I mean, you're in my age group. Your family, like we, we, we probably at uh, at our age, we don't have all like. Your, are your parents around? No, right. No. But now brother. his family is probably a different story, right? So how is yeah. how it how is that? How 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 like how was that when you met them for the first time? I haven't met them. You uh, haven't met them. No, he doesn't. He doesn't go back to Kentucky at all. And we passed when he was moving down here. We passed through Kentucky. I'm like, should I meet anyone? And he's like, no, maybe later. So, uh, but his sister, he's got a show coming up middle of September at March, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, have, have you been to Philip March's new gallery? I don't um, think so, but they, they just good to hear about it. Six weeks. It's in the old um, on Avenue A, ah. Street, and. Um, Philip March Jones is his dealer and he's from Kentucky and he deals with outsider art. Um, he, at the outsider fair, he curated the show of Michael Stipe's collection. Oh, okay. I know that. <laughs> yeah, so Philip is his dealer. So that's coming up in September. So that's also one reason he's got to really get his stuff together. Cause he could not have a six week break in his studio practice True. because he's got, he's also got a show in Ketchum, Idaho, hmm. uh, which I knew nothing about. I guess it's like Aspen for Sun Valley. And uh, his L.A. gallery, Ochi, has a space there. Ah, ah. So you haven't met his family. So do you think the wedding's going to be like the first time you actually meet a lot of his relatives? Or is he just I, not involved with his family? I, he's not that involved in his family. I think, oh, but his sister, that's what we are going to say, his sister's coming up. And staying with us for the show in at March and September. Ah, oh, so you'll meet her then. Yeah. Although I, at some point, because the Photo Fest show in my space is opening in those weeks, so I'm going to have to be back and forth. I'm not selling my house here until what I have to do with this space finishes. And I might end up, there's a few people I'm talking about continuing the space with a hyphenated name, earning so-and-so, mm-hmm. so I can still have a presence here. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't have any deep ties to Houston. I, I moved in 2009, and other than a few friends, I don't really have that deep ties. Mm-hmm. So is there a real, you know, how how do you, like, do you think it's really different showing art outside of the city, outside of an urban area? Well, Or outside a major art hub? Houston is, I, I I would say the third um, art city because it's New York, L.A., Houston, Chicago as the four in terms of. Oh, biggest. okay. Houston is so a, it has a, a pr- bigger art scene than I'm aware of. Probably, it's a big scene. But the weird thing is, the generation of the Manils, um, the young people who wanted to be like John and Dominique de Manil. They're elderly now, and they're one by one leaving the planet. Um, mm. And there has not been a follow-up generation. Like I've got mm-hmm. maybe twenty Houston collectors who are passionate, but 
for them, spending over $5,000 on a piece is a lot of money. And that older generation collected at a higher level and they were perfectly comfortable spending $50,000. And as a dealer, in order to pay the bills, you have to sell the higher price work. And I have not... What's happened is the city's got this very big advisor decorator culture, mm. which is highly problematic mm. because you get addicted to the money. You get because uh, mm. people build these humongous mansions and memorial, and they hire someone to build them a collection, and uh, they live with the work. But they don't even know the names of the art. Oh, sad. They're not so. You have to measure the decorator issue. You have to be very careful with uh, it because, I mean, I've, I honestly, no gallery here could stay open if you didn't have. I get it. Clients. I get it. We but, make home decorating. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like these giant homes get built, and they mm. they want to look like a place. Mm. And I, um, some of them have very good taste. There's a lot that you follow on Instagram and they're like, this makes this beautiful mansion look like a day's end in, in the Midwest. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, speaking yeah. of collections, I want to make sure that we get to talk about your gay art collection because I'm looking for, I wrote down what the Instagram is, but I want, I know that's like something that you've There's had for a long time. Art. What? Yeah. It just, it, the name is just Bill Arnie Gay Art Collection. Okay, I, guys, I, I, on Instagram. It doesn't have enough followers. I was surprised. I thought it'd have like a billion. Yeah. People have to know about this, so tell us about it. Well, um, I just had bought so much work in the White Columns years because AIDS really, for our generation, changed everything. It politicized a generation, and it also required a discussion of sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. I just, because- I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want to remind um, listeners that you were the director of White Columns from 1985 to 96. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, and it, and that was a really important period. So yes. you had artists like Jim Hodges and Felix Gonzalez Torres um, doing these projects and um, around HIV AIDS. And it was this really vibrant time but also one of the things about art about AIDS was it was sexy and it was also really funny. AIDS humor was gallows humor, but it was like very funny. There was this uh, one of my favorite jokes was that at one of the act up rallies, people were like, how many more have to die? And someone walked up and said, who's Harmony more and why does she have to die? Uh, <laughs> As a and- joke or no, no, no. And they, they were like, really, they were really like, yeah. wow. Like, okay. Okay. All right. Oh, wow. Also, oh. also, there was the act up, fight back, fight mm. AIDS, and it turned into fried eggs. Act up, <laughs> fight back, fried eggs. So there was this great humor and stuff, too, around it. And I, um, and I love that. And when I came out at 14, gay was an inclusive term. It was gay men and women. Mm. And then when I was about 27 – people stopped saying gay men and women. It became gay and lesbian. And that was where the fracturing into the letters started. Mm -hmm. It went from G to GL and now Mm -hmm. the long version. And there was an attempt with the word queer to like get the big umbrella going again. Mm -hmm. Oh, queer, 
that. Mm -hmm. But the word queer was so upsetting to older people Mm. because they had such negative associations. So by calling the Bill Arning Gay Art Collection and putting it out there and letting museums know that this is going to be available as a gift on my death, whoever wants it, and I've got a couple leads going, Mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to have the word G given the respect of my generation. I talk to 24-year-olds now, and they don't even come out anymore. They just live, they just have sex with whoever they want. The idea of choosing a sexual team doesn't occur to them. Uh, you know, it's like, um, I, I keep laughing at the different jokes about the don't say gay bill in Florida, which is heinous and hateful, but you're like, well, they don't even have to say gay anymore because they're going to sleep with whoever they want to and they're not going to let categories change their mind. So it's a historical thing, trying to explain why it was important to a 24-year-old that people were making work explaining what their lives really were is it's 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 going to seem unremarkable and in that i love this idea that putting it into history i wrote a big essay i do i write, I do write a lot for museum catalog yeah and i wrote for the art aids america catalog which was the first show that tried to put art around aids in a historical perspective in new york it was went to the bronx museum and i talked about how rapidly things changed you know at the, when i was writing the essay um pre-exposure treatment so that you were pretty much immune to AIDS if you took this pill daily was new. And I talked to people that had like just started taking it or had the prescription in their wallet. And they were like, yeah, none of this is going to make sense in a couple of years because people don't have to get AIDS now. There's like, Mm. you know, and if if people still do, there's reasons for it, which have to do with other issues. Mm. And, and I was just like, yeah, all of this is mutable. So this collection is about looking at this historical period and would be useful for teaching. Yes. There's famous artists in it, like Jim Hodges and Felix Gonzalez Torres, but then there's also artists who did one show and died of AIDS who are still important to me. Uh, mm-hmm. And are, so, you, are you yeah. still collecting? Yeah. And so yeah, that yeah. you at, you still add to it. And I read it's like 800 works or more. Or? I think it's about 950 now. Wow. Wow. So that's yeah. so interesting. So you don't feel that gay, gay men say have the same obstacles or judgments made on them that, I mean, obviously they don't, but do you think it's, you think it's really like, it doesn't matter anymore if you're gay or not? Well, having just seen the paper this morning with uh, the Florida bill getting well, complicated in Oklahoma, that's also, I got to talk about being in, being in Houston, which is a very weird place for this. I'm in the middle of the reddest state that has the most heinous politics in the country. And Ted Cruz lives 20 blocks from me. And this is a horrible human being who everyone knows is a horrible human being who uses the rhetoric of hate and racism all the time. But Houston itself is this incredibly progressive city. And when I moved here, Anise Parker had just become mayor and she was the only out mayor of a major city. Mm -hmm. And she lives like from my gallery, her house is about 45 feet that way. Wow. And it's an 1890s house. It's beautiful. Uh, and she's a major figure. And one of the things here is that it was, uh, if you were in the 60s and 70s, if you wanted to go have a gay life, 
in the south part of America, you either moved to New Orleans or Houston. New Orleans was if you wanted to party and mm. go wild, and Houston was if you wanted to make a lot of money and go wild. It also meant that when AIDS hit, the death toll here was horrible mm. because it had was such a concentration in the small area. And a lot of people, like, they never knew why Uncle Jack moved to Houston from Mississippi, and all they knew was he moved mm. here and died. So mm. there was like they never they never knew he was gay. Wow. They just, just right, right, and right. So Didn't a, talk about it. And I opened my gallery in Montrose because these streets are haunted by that generation. And it is, and and people walk in and go like, "Oh, did you know there was um, a kinky teddy bear shop in your space?" <laughs> and that is real. And That's it turns so out funny. The store sold little leather teddy bears. And it's like I learned all these histories. And also Houston is where Lawrence versus Texas went to the Supreme Court and overthrew sodomy laws for the entire country. Texas is a freak show. It's true. It's true. Hey, Bill, we've got like um, three minutes left. And I want to get one minute of like what if, 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 if it was all up to you, what would be like the one thing or the. How would what would you like to see? What would be a positive direction in some way for the art world to move forward? What's something positive that you would like to see happen or happen more of? That humor and pleasure become the paramount values beyond uh, self righteousness and feeling good art. I'd much rather have something that is decadent and terrifying, and I really want. When your teenage kid says to you, I'm into art, I want you parents to look horrified the way when I told my parents I like punk rock. <laughs> I like that idea. That sounds like so much more fun than like the than what's happening now. Than what's happening now. So, um, Bill, before we go, I want to make sure, well, first of all, I'm going to have to tell you about Radio Free Brooklyn, but I just want to make sure that we get all this stuff about about you and, and what you're up to. Uh, so your website is BillArning.com, simply. Both can be, yep. And then um, the the big gay, Bill, Ar- what, say the, say the Instagram again? Bill, Bill Arning Gay Art Collection for that collection and Bill Arning Exhibitions for the gallery. Right. And that's in Houston. And you're going to be moving to Chatham in. Gonna, in uh, hopefully uh, uh, the goal is to have a space there open by July, but ooh. everything has been complicated. And so if, as long as I'm up and running there by August, it's good. Okay. I have um, like, after I get off the phone here, I will be doing paperwork for the rest of the day. Uh, to make sure. Okay. So like, we, we got to keep an eye on you. You're, you have your own Instagram, Bill Arning um, at Bill Arning. Um, that's a good way to follow, to, to, yeah. to, and, to stalk and, Bill, stalk him. I, I tweet a lot too. And he tweets. Uh, oh, well let's tweet then. Okay. Follow him on Twitter. Um, anyway, so I just want to say, you know, thanks so much for listening. I'm Dr. Lisa. Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit is here every Thursday, 2 to 3. Um, Bill, you've been amazing. Thank you. Um, and um, I also want to remind you about our, um, you know, about our 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 show we're having a you know live show with bands seventh grade girl fright fight dirt bikes barrette <laughs> castle black bar at bar frida and that's may 20th tickets are ten dollars which you can get online and 
I hope you better fucking show up. I'm going to be there and we're going to we're going to have a drink, okay? So make sure you you make Dr. Lisa gets shit.